Good morning, class. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel. We're starting a new series, and if I hold up, we're going to go through Daniel, and then we're going to go right into the Revelation as well. And Pastor and I have talked about this, and in light of world events, things that are going on globally as well as nationally, we felt like we needed to go back and revisit what the Bible says is going to happen in the future. Uh, just to make double sure that we understand why things are going as they are. Now, I want us to have a word of prayer. We're going to read a couple of the verses, and then I'm going to give you this morning a little bit of background material and uh, then go into uh, one uh, issue in chapter 1 that I think is quite significant for our purposes. All right, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. Thank you for the revelation that you've given us of yourself and of your plan for the ages. And so we pray as we begin this very, very special and important book today, you'll help us to understand and uh, be able to take some things away that will change our lives, not simply that we will know material, but we will be able to apply that material in our life in a way that glorifies you. May that be the case, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all of the books in the Bible other than the book of Revelation, Daniel is one of the most significant, if not the most significant. And you have to understand something about Daniel before you can appreciate what's happening in the book of Revelation. We get to Revelation 12, 13, right in those areas, those chapters, and you start reading about the Antichrist that people talk about all the time. But the foundational information about Antichrist is found in the book of Daniel. And so you have to understand what Daniel is saying in order to appreciate the material that is given to us in the Revelation. And in order to get us started today, I want to read just a couple of verses First, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. Then we'll look at some background material and then come back to these verses toward the end of our lesson today. Notice, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them uh, to the land of Shinar. Now, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. To the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. And that's where Daniel comes in. He's uh, of uh, uh, one of the royal families, possibly, uh, but a very significant young man with great ability. And so the king is wanting to use his, his abilities in his court. Now, let's talk about uh, Daniel a little bit as far as background is concerned. Daniel is the author. And we're going to talk about that controversy just a little bit. Uh, but... Uh, The word Daniel, his name means God is judge. 
or God's judge. And that's significant because this book talks about how God is going to judge the nation of Israel in particular, but the world in general. Now, talking about the authorship, several things I think are important for us to understand. When we talk about Daniel's authorship, you've got the controversy of people who do not believe in prophetic literature. They don't believe in predictive prophecy. And so consequently, with all the details that Daniel is able to give us in the book, they say, well, he couldn't have prophesied that, so he must have written the book late. And so many people, most people, I think, will date it somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 165, 166. Now, there may be changes in that, but uh, that's approximately where they place it. And it's all because they don't believe he could have prophesied. So these prophecies being fulfilled must come later, and probably somebody other than Daniel wrote the book. And they used his name to give credibility to the book. And they talked about prophecy to also give credibility to the book. Now, there's the liberal world today, and we're constantly facing that kind of issue. But if we're Bible-believing people, the book says Daniel wrote it. As a matter of fact, when you get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, and along in there, I, Daniel, saw, or I, Daniel, did this, or whatever. So unless the book is falsifying information, he wrote the book. If this is God's word, can there be falsification of literature? From our perspective, absolutely not. But that's what you battle today. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about is the date. When you talk about the date, different men uh, have slightly different dates because we're going way back. We're talking about a half a century before Christ comes, talking about 500 B.C., uh, Archer says in uh, 532, 530, somewhere in there, that general percentage. Leupold, a Lutheran scholar, says 538 to 528. So there's a little latitude there, but the bottom line is the book is written early, not late. See, 165 is real late. Now, I need to understand that. When you're talking about before Christ dating, you're talking about the numbers coming down to the point that Christ comes, and then they start going back up again. So this is uh, the way you need, must think when you're talking about, about dates. When we talk about the history of Daniel, and I'll just make a couple of comments there that I think are important for us to understand He's born somewhere in the neighborhood of 625, 625. Some would put it uh, a little bit different. They make 620 or something like that. What you end up with then, child of God, that Daniel, who wrote this book, when he is taken captive and deported, he's in his teens, somewhere between 16 years of old age uh, years old and 19 years old, somewhere in that general vicinity. He's a young man. 
And God is going to use him in spectacular ways. So he's brought to Babylon with the siege of Babylon somewhere in uh, 606 to 605. So he's in his teens. Now, I want to talk about the purpose of the book as well. I would like to suggest to you two main purposes for the book of Daniel. One, the primary purpose is to explain, now watch it, to explain the times of the Gentiles. There's a tremendous amount of material about the Gentile nations. So he wants to explain uh, the times of the Gentiles. That's a purpose. The message that accomplishes that purpose is to emphasize the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign over the nation of Israel, but Daniel points out to us he's sovereign over the entire world. Now, that's reflected in chapter 1. I want you to see it before we ever look at the content. Notice in verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord gave. Now, from a human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar came in there and defeated him. But the text says, God gave. Amen? That's sovereignty. And then you go a little bit later, and you get to verse 9, you find the same thing. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God gave him that kind of relationship and recognition. And then you look down at verse 17, you see the same thing. And as for these four youths, that's Daniel and his three friends, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature. So you see the sovereignty of God is predominant, beginning all the way back here in the very first chapter. Now, once we understand the sovereignty of God as being an issue uh, that, that emphasizes his uh, sovereignty, we look at the outline of the book, and it reflects that emphasis on, on the sovereignty of God. And I have a copy of uh, the outline here before me. You don't have it, but I'm going to at least give you a background. You may want to take a couple of notes here. When you talk about the first chapter, you're talking about the first division of the book, the sovereignty of God over Daniel's captivity, the sovereignty of God over Daniel's captivity. And we've already seen that. God gave that kind of thing. God's in control over Daniel's captivity. Now, may I make an observation? When Daniel's going through all of this, he's a spiritual man. It's very clear in the text. But at the same time, I'm sure he was concerned about the fact that he was taken out of his beloved land and deported as a prisoner of war, if you please, uh, in another land. And he's wondering, where is God? And the sovereignty of God is emphasized throughout the book. And the very first major division in an outline of the book is the sovereignty of God over Daniel's captivity. A second major division in the outline of the book would be in chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 7. 
Now, class, this is an interesting section. For example, when you look at the language here in the original, the, uh, it's Aramaic in chapter 2 through chapter 7. Now, there's a couple of other places where Hebrew is not used in the Old Testament, but this is a major section where Aramaic is used. Why? Because he's talking about the Gentile world. It's the sovereignty of God over the Gentile world, chapter 2 through chapter 7. Another interesting feature is that as it talks about the Gentile world, it begins in chapter 2 with an emphasis, emphasis, and we'll see some of this next week, on the four Gentile kingdoms. And when you get to chapter 7, it is emphasizing the four major Gentile kingdoms, okay? This whole section is about God's sovereignty over the Gentile world. Chapter 1, sovereignty over Daniel's captivity. 2 through 7, God's sovereignty over the Gentile world. Now, there's a third division. The third division begins in chapter 8 and goes to the end of the book, and it's the sovereignty of God over, watch it, the Jewish world. Once we understand what God is doing in the Gentile world, then it comes back and begins to emphasize what is God doing in the Jewish world. And uh, all of that is leading up to this fifth kingdom that Daniel keeps talking about, and that's the, the eternal kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to set up. So chapter 8 through chapter 12, he's going to be talking about the sovereignty of God over uh, the Jewish world. Medication's talking back to me today. That's all right. Now, I want you to go with me to uh, chapter 1 of Daniel. We've seen the outline. It's all about the sovereignty of God. And chapter 1 is dealing with Daniel's uh, captivity and deportation, all in the sovereign plan of God. Now, if you're writing down notes, I'm going to give you an outline for chapter 1. The first division in chapter 1 is verses 1 through 7, and it's dealing with his, uh, Daniel's circumstances as a Jew. As a Jew. That's verses 1 to 7. And then verse 8 through 16, his conviction as a man. His convictions as a man. Remember, he's going to be offered all these special foods and wine and all of that, and he doesn't want to defile himself. So the convictions of the man. And then the third division is found in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. It's uh, his uh, comprehension as a man. He has tremendous mental skills, and that shows up for, for us in verse 17 through verse 21. Now, there's the division of the, of the chapter 1 of concerning Daniel's uh, captivity. Now, I want to go back, class, to the first three verses that we just read as we began the class. 
We want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I think it's important. Now, notice in verse 1 again, And the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, some people jump all over this because uh, when this uh, particular military event occurred, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't king. Uh, he became king because his father died, Napopolazar died during the campaign. So he becomes king. And uh, he's a, his father was a general who became the king over Babylon. And then he comes and leads uh, his son or has his son lead in the besieging and the defeat of uh, uh, Jerusalem and taking over Judah and taking many of the choice members uh, to, uh, back to Babylon. Now, we've already mentioned that he's deported in 605. Now, notice it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, their sovereignty, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, uh, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, let's talk about Shinar for a little bit. I think it'll help us to understand something the history, of the history that's going on here. Hold your place in Daniel so we don't lose time finding it again. Hold your place there and go with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to see about this land of Shinar. Genesis chapter 10. And when you get to chapter 10, it's talking in verse 9 about Nimrod. And the beginning of his kingdom uh, was Babel. See that? Babel. Now, when you go over a little bit further into chapter 11, and it came about as they journeyed. Now, he sets up the kingdom in Shinar, which is uh, uh, in Babel. Now, watch it. And it came about as they journeyed, that's the people of this period, uh, that they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Yeah. There's Shinar, first mentioned, and it's mentioned in Daniel in our first chapter. Now, notice what it says, verse 4 of chapter 11. And they said, uh, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So they're planning on settling right there in the plain of Shinar and building this city in a tower that reaches to God uh, into heaven. Ziggurats is what they were called back in that day. And this is the first one as far as we know, and it's in the land of Shinar. Notice, it says in verse 7, Come, let us go down. Notice that. Come, let us go down. Stop. It's talking about God, and it's plural. Let 
us go down. Now, we understand that God is one. But we all understand that God is three in one. And we have a reference here to it, and that's why it's a plural. Uh, It says uh, that uh, God uh, was going to scatter them, but let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, what's that going to do? It's going to mean that they separate and go their various ways with people that they can't understand. So the scattering of the people is the result of the multiplicity of languages. Notice also, it says, uh, so God scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Then notice, therefore, its name was called Babel. Babel means Babylon. And it has to do with the scattering of the people with this multiplicity of languages. Okay? So where are we? Babel. Babylon. Daniel chapter 1. Everybody with me? In the land of Shinar. Now, with that, we go back uh, to uh, Daniel chapter 1. Notice what he says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, Nebuchadnezzar's hands, and uh, along with uh, some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. And they built the city there, and uh, uh, it uh, was the beginning of the multiplicity of languages in the land of Shinar. Now notice verse 3. And the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel. And the text says, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. So there's a question mark in the minds of many. Is he just one of the nobles? Or is he part of the royal family, this Daniel that is writing this book? But somehow or another, he's in some kind of position that gives him leadership. Then notice verse 4. And the youth in whom was no defect, that's who he wants to bring into the land, people with no defect, who are good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning of knowledge, and who had poise, ability to serve in the king's court. So here we have a description of Daniel. Who is he? Good-looking guy. Probably of the royal family, or at least one of the nobles. He is a tremendous mind, and he understands literature and so on. And then notice... And the latter part of verse 4, and he, that is the king, ordered him to, talking about this one in charge of the king's court, he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he's going to get educated in the Babylonian time. Notice verse 5, and the king appointed for them a daily portion of the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated, watch it, for three 
years, and at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal uh, service. So here's a man who is highly educated. He comes as a captive to Babylon in the land of Shinar, and he is educated in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Why? Because the king wants to use him in his service in the court. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the rest of the chapter. I want to stay here uh, in this section in the beginning. But it mentions that uh, they were to get the choice food and the wine which he drank. That is Nebuchadnezzar's choice food. They were going to have a special diet. Now, I want you to notice verse 8. Here's his conviction. And Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission uh, from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, notice the next verse. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of of the commander of the officials. Now, there is some objection to Daniel wanting to avoid this defilement through uh, the, the, uh, this choice food and wine. And the king, uh, commander of the officials, said to Daniel, I'm afraid because of this. If you guys don't turn out like you're supposed to, it's going to mean my head. But when it's all over, Daniel is a man highly respected, and he is given a chance, and he proves, he and his three friends, that they can eat vegetables and not be defiled, and they will be very healthy at the end of the period. Everybody with me? So we're talking about the fact, here's a man of conviction. He loves God, and he doesn't want to be defiled with the king's food. Now, what all that involves, I don't know. It could refer back to the laws in Leviticus 11. We're not sure. But he didn't want to defile himself with the diet that the king had provided, and they let him get by with that. Now, I want to go back, and I want us to look at a phrase in verse 1. That's all I'm going to say, or verse 3. That's all I'm going to say about chapter 1, except to go back and look at these verses. Notice that he says, they are taken to the land of Shinar, verse 2. I'm sure Daniel got discouraged by that. How would you like for some national movement to take over our country? Suppose a Hitler came and took over our country and we were deported to concentration camps or something of that sort. Even as believers, we'd be affected by that. I think I would. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I think we would be, in, we would be uh, negatively impacted by that kind of thing. Now, here's what I want you to see. God, remember the outline? The sovereignty of God over Daniel's captivity. And there's something we need to learn uh, from this uh, movement into uh, captivity. I want you to go with me uh, to 
2 Kings uh, chapter uh, 22 and chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 22 through chapter 23. I want you to see all that happens and how Daniel gets caught in all of this. There's a reason why God lets Daniel go into captivity. Not just because of the ministry he has, but because of what God's doing. Chapter 22, the king is Josiah. He's eight years old, according to verse 1, when he becomes king. And he's a great king. He's a spiritual man. And we read, and it came about in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan. Uh, and he goes and checks, in the rest of those verses down through verse 7, about the money to repair the temple. It was in disarray because the nation was not serving God. It had gone into a apostasy. And so here's this young man who loves God. And uh, he sends uh, for a report on the money and how it's being used uh, to repair the temple. And then uh, notice in verse 8, and I'm moving rapidly through this, but I want you to see the foundation. In verse 8, the high priest tells the king's official uh, that he has found a copy of the law. Now look up here. The people and the nation is so apostatized from God that they have lost the Old Testament law that they had. So they find it. And Josiah says, hey, I want to know what it says. So the book is read, the book of the law is read to him. And then he says, I want you to go and I want you to inquire of the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great, he says, evidently, is the wrath of God that burns against us because of our fathers that have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. In other words, he says, we are in a heap of trouble, boy. And the reason for it is we haven't even read the law. We had lost it. Now it's been found. And Josiah says, we have got to remedy this situation. So we move on in the chapter and we find that uh, Josiah uh, wants to make a covenant. Notice in uh, chapter 23, verse 2. Notice what it says. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read uh, in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Now, as a result of that, and all the people have heard, then there comes this response. And the king stood, Josiah, stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk 
after the Lord. Now look at that. Here's a man, young fella, takes over when he's eight years old. He wants to follow God. He starts repairing the temple. They find the law that's been lost. He gets it, and he's worried about what's going to happen. So he says, we have got to do something. So he makes a covenant, and that uh, he and the people are going to walk with God. Now, look at verse 4. And the king uh, commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priest, the second order and the doorkeepers and so on, uh, to bring out uh, of the temple of the Lord the vessels that were made for Baal, false god, Ashtaroth, for the host of heaven, sun, moon, stars, and so on. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields. So they removed all the vessels that were involved in the worship of the false gods. He's bringing back a reformed Israel. He is bringing back a renewal of the worship of God. And he's getting rid of all of this apostatized uh, things that have been going on. Notice verse 5. And he did away with the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places. So they remove all of the idolatrous apostate priest. He doesn't stop there. Notice verse 7. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. That tells you how far off they are. So he destroys uh, that the particular uh, idolatry and apostasy. Notice, he also, in verse 10, stops this child's uh, sacrifices to Mudok, the, the false god. They would actually take their children and put them into this pot that was burning hot and kill their sons as a sacrifice uh, to this false god. Then notice, verse 19, still going. This young man is bringing about a reformation in Israel. And Josiah also, verse 19, removes all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord, and he did to them just as he had done uh, in Bethel. Now, you remember that in Samaria... Uh, they decided, well, we don't want to go all the way back to Jerusalem. So we're going to set up our own worship areas. They called them the high places, and they had priests that operated out of that. And Josiah brings that to an end. He's not finished yet. Look at verse 21. And he says, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. So there's a renewal of the celebration of the Passover. That's not all. Look at verse 24. Moreover, Joshua, uh, Josiah, removed the medians, the spiritists, the teraphim, the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judea and in Jerusalem that he might confirm the words of the law, which are written in the book that Helkiah the priest found 
in the house of the Lord. They were spiritists as well. He did away with all of that. This young man, I'd say it again, loves God and he wants to serve him and he brings about revival and renewal of the worship of Yahweh in the land of Israel. Now, Daniel is there when all this is going on. And he's one of the young men that is faithful. Notice what it says in verse 25. And before him, there was no king like him, Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, and did not, uh, nor did any like him arise after him. He is a great revivalist in the, in the kingdom. No one before him except David, and then no one after him. But notice, after all of that that he has accomplished, as the man of God and the king of Israel, or uh, Judah. Notice what it says. Moreover, watch it. My son and I were talking about this, and he said, Dad, there's a verse that's a very important one, and I'd really forgotten it because I hadn't studied this in so long. And as I started reading through it, I found the asterisk right beside verse 26. This is what my son was talking about. However, the Lord did not turn the fierceness of his great wrath with which he, his anger burned against Judah because of all of the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. Now look at that, child of God. After all of that revival, after all they've done to return Israel back to the worship, the faithful worship of Yahweh, what happens? We find out that God says, it's great, but I'm still going to punch you. Now, child of God, I want you to think about that for a few minutes. Our country is in a position right now where we are boarding babies left and right. A hundred years ago, I don't think we'd have put up with anything like that. We have same-sex marriages today in our country. And I say to a lot of the young people that I deal with, talk to, I may not be here when it happens, but God is going to bring judgment on the United States of America because of its sin. And listen to me. Here's where I'm going with all of this. And the Christians are going to suffer along with all the others in our nation. That's what happened to Daniel. He's there in the midst of the revival. And you'd think, well, he's going to be just fine. No, he's deported as a prisoner of war to Babylon. I want to say to you this morning, when people say we're not hurting anybody when we allow same-sex marriage and, and we say, well, it's the woman's right to make the decision, we've heard all those arguments. 
and it's none of our business what they do and so on. It is our business because our kids and our grandkids, if the Lord tarries, are going to suffer for the sins of their fathers. Everybody with me? So when we come to chapter 1, and we see Daniel is deported, and I feel, and I've said it before, he probably is saying, what in the world is going on here? We have brought about revival, and God says, I'm still going to punish you because of your fathers, and in particular, Manasseh. Everybody with me now? And we need to understand that that is true or possibly true for our nation as well if the Lord tarries. And in his sovereignty, the believers are going to suffer as well. Lesson learned. We've got to spread the news. We need to win people to Christ and try to help them see our country is going down a wrong path. And the believers are going to suffer with all the rest. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And as we begin our study of the book of Daniel, and this young man who came out of the revival in Judah, who's taken prisoner, and God used him in a special way, Help us to understand all the dynamics that are going on behind the scenes and how he has to rethink, make his attitude right so that he can serve the Lord in his new location. Help us, Father, to recognize that decisions that are made in our country today will impact our kids and grandkids, and the next generation if the Lord tarries. May, us, may we be strong and faithful to communicate God's truth to a world that's moving further and further away from him. In Jesus' name, amen.